All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called Emission. And Emission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit technipfmc.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. For those of you who are saying, wait, this is supposed to be oil and gas onshore, and where's Jason Gaudier? Well, you're in the right place. And we thank Jason for hosting over 175 episodes. And many of you know that Jason has gone on to follow his dream. Well, I'm Elena Melkert, your host for Oil and Gas Upstream. And some of you know me as the former director of the U.S. Department of Energy's Upstream Oil and Gas Research Program. I retired from the DOE a year ago, August, and I founded a small consultancy. And that gives me time to do this. And I'm so excited to get started. Before I introduce our first guest, I want to thank Technique FMC for sponsoring this podcast. So now I want to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Susan Nash. Susan is the Director of Innovation, Emerging Science, and Technology for the AAPG, American Association of Petroleum Geologists. She is focused on science and technology development with an emphasis on energy analytics and human and economic development. In addition, Dr. Nash has developed and administered online programs and courses, as well as several vlogs and webinar series. Widely published in technology, innovation, and economic development, and other areas, Dr. Nash's latest book was published in 2022. She regularly writes for Energy and Commerce. Her bachelor's, master's, and PhD were earned at the University of Oklahoma. She also has completed certificate programs in international design and technology. Susan, you are so accomplished. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's really a pleasure, and that's really flattering. I, I, I really appreciate it. I think, I think I have to thank the the ups and downs and the vagaries of the oil and gas industry for the opportunity to diversify <laughs> over the years. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly have a diverse diverse background. So, I'm just dying of curiosity. What is the name of your book that you just recently published here in 2022? Okay. Well, it's um. It's, a, it's about a learning management system called Moodle, not Noodle, <laughs> Moodle with an M. And that's actually the most um, popular and most widely used learning management or online course, uh, virtual learning experience uh, hosting kind of platform in the world. And so I've just written the fifth edition of uh, uh, Moodle e-learning design. So it's it's not very interesting. It's not a very interesting book, but, but it's practical. Oh my gosh! I think it's interesting to some people. I'm not quite sure I understand what it is, but I'm <laughs> sure there are people who understand it, just like some of the things that I've written as well. Um, and I uh, 
had the privilege of authoring just one chapter of a larger book, and that was really, really tricky. It, it took a lot, a lot of time. So I, my hat's off to you for being able to write whole books and more than one. So so thank you for the, all the contributions that you're making to, um, to the industry. So this is uh, Oil and Gas Upstream, and so we'd like to start with some sort of a framing for how you view upstream and, uh, and what is it that you think about when you think about upstream. Well, I really appreciate that question because I think that that's an area where people often have a bit of confusion. But to me, there are three different parts of like the streams. There's upstream, midstream, and downstream. So just for for um, convenience, we can call upstream the exploration and development piece. And then once the production goes into a truck or into a pipeline or into a gas gathering system, that becomes midstream. And then once it gets delivered to a refinery or, or uh, LNG or any type of, of other processing plant, that becomes downstream. I think that's great. I think that's great. And I have a similar definition, although um, in my work with the Department of Energy, I was involved in so many subsurface applications that I began to think about upstream as anything that had to do with getting something from the subsurface, the reservoir, or anything subsurface, and moving it up to the surface and then sort of handing it off. Uh, but the whole value uh, chain um, has these general um, designations of upstream, midstream, and, and downstream. And so definitely everything that is ahead of um, the midstream, I consider um, upstream as well. Very good. Well, I really so, like your definition. That's great. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, had to, I had to come up with something to help people who who really were new to oil and gas. And so it was uh, using that simple language, I think, is, is real helpful sometimes. So um, looking at upstream and technology, you know, I spent 34 years um, uh, in research at the Department of Energy. I spent more in a, in a time in the oil and gas sector, but we'll get to that later. Um, but in terms of our technology, uh, tell us about some of the uh, your thoughts about uh, technology and some of the recent trends and how it's affecting upstream and just, just what you see sort of on that landscape there for upstream and technology. Well, I thank you for the question because for the last five or six years, I've been heavily involved in technology development through a program that we call U-Pitch or just New Technology Showcase. So I've been pretty much a technology scout for Upstream. And it, it ties in well with my background because, I, as you mentioned, I've been involved in, in economic development that ties into energy for many years. So what I see emerging right now are two different areas. One is analytics and the whole use of, of like big data, cloud data, um, and the way of analyzing or organizing the data, as well as using artificial intelligence to not only um, work with uh, kind of early, early stage upstream, which would be seismic exploration, et cetera, for new reservoirs, but also for optimizing what we have and 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 modeling reservoirs and also kind of modeling things that would be secondary or enhanced oil recovery, which would be things like uh, water floods. 
Great, great. And what do you see uh, sort of on, on the future of the landscape for technology development, things that uh, – your background is geology, right? Yes. So I, geology, but then I blended it with economics and then uh, humanity. So it's like very, very, very um, kind of big picture-ish as well as, as more specific. And what I see happening is more emphasis in – multi-use of the reservoirs. So not only are we talking about using reservoirs for producing oil and gas, we're also looking at making sure that we're not leaving anything behind, which might be a resource that we could use like um, brine mining and critical minerals or helium or uh, things like uh, producible water that's easily um, easily purified. And then on top of that, taking a look at the reservoirs and seeing how we can use them for energy storage. So those are part of our ways of reducing the carbon footprint. So we can use them in terms of of, of carbon capture, utilization and storage, pumping CO2 back into reservoirs, or we can convert them into geothermal. Excellent, excellent. Is that some of the work or some of the topic areas that AAPG is involved in or interested in, or is this your uh, what you what you value that you bring to the organization? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'm personally very, very motivated and interested in those topics, and then conveniently enough, <laughs> so is AAPG. So we have our uh, different divisions. We have the Division of Professional Affairs, and there, those are um, often. That's the one that's involved with a lot of the professional development, but also any kind of legislation or governmental incentives. And then we have our energy minerals division, and they that looks at critical minerals and helium and, and other products. And then we have our division of environmental geosciences, and that is involved in a lot of the, the reducing carbon footprint. So we have our CCUS conference. We have um, looking at water protection, um, all those types of areas, as well as uh, anything of leak detection and, and dealing with eliminating fugitive methane. And and your division, your organization is the um, you're the director of innovation, emerging science, and technology. So what are some of the uh, emerging science, uh, innovation, and technologies that, you, that you've that been involved in uh, recently or or are currently involved in, if you could talk about that. Oh, so, absolutely. Well, AEPG has our UPITCH program that we had at, uh, at your tech, which is our Unconventional Resources Technology Conference. And we do that with the Society of Petroleum Engineers and also the Society of uh, Exploration Geophysicists. And and we also had our co-located um, um, conference with, well, it's actually a joint conference with SEG. We called it Image. And so we had the, the showcase where we had approximately 40 new technologies going and presenting each, um, in each event. And I think some of the most popular ones had to do with uh, analytics, lots of analytics that, that help um, optimize the operations, and also better visualize reservoirs. And then lots of drone technologies, which is really fun because they're used not only for looking at surface features, but also for near surface for like 
um, being able to detect any kind of metal, like um, old wells, things like that. And then another a fun area is just the area of, of converting old wells into geothermal wells. And we had um, a company or an organization, University of Oklahoma, that partnered with, with a couple of organizations to actually do this in Shawnee and also Tuttle, Oklahoma. And so this uh, U-Pitch is probably pretty exciting. I, I did attend one. I did listen to all these great, great ideas. How do, how do people become involved in, in U-Pitch? How do they get to pitch, I guess is the question. It's very easy. <laughs> Just contact me. Oh, that's the great answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll put your uh, email in. If that's okay, we'll put your email, yes, your absolutely. contact in the show notes. So, well, great. Well, well, wh- what do people do to prepare to, uh, you know, to call you, to ask you if they can be part of it? How does, how does this all work? Well, one of the things that we do is we kind of screen to see what kind of technologies that people might have. And so they might be on the engineering side, so that could be better drilling muds, it could be better, better leak detection, better... Um, pumps, et cetera, or it could be on the seismic side, or it could be better ways to um, do seismic acquisition and planning. So just um, kind of getting in touch. And then what I'm working on now is we, we had kind of a little training module. And so I'm going to put together another training module to make sure that people, first of all, know what they want to ask for, and then figure out where they need to be um, in terms of of uh, talking to the various constituencies, because we have um, people that are helping people get field tests. We also have people who are investors who may want to invest in a new company. We also have ones who want to help commercialize so that they can help ramp up production and get out there in the market. Um, we have all stages. We have accelerators. So that that I want to help matchmake to the best of my ability. Yeah, that mat- matchmaking is, I think, really important because, uh, you know, especially with a new technology, you can't do everything. And so to have sort of this community of people who are interested, people who want to be part of it in one way or another, lots of ways to become part of it, um, really leads to the success of being able to take this technology from an idea into something that can have some value in the marketplace and really help solve some problems. So so the um, the matchmaking, does it only take place at UPitch or is there a way on your website to um, become involved with others or how, you know, is, is because you, you pitch is just a a couple of times a year, right? At different. That's right. But But right now, yes. But right now I'm getting the people who actually participated in you pitch, asking them to send me their, um, um, presentations, at least a PDF. And then we will update the website where they're, they are on the schedule and we'll put a link to their presentation, and then we will send that out to all the potential people. And I'll put a few little um, links in social media to get people involved. And I just wanted to point out, this is something that, I, I mean, it's really interesting to talk to you about this. this the, developing a technology is a lot harder than it seems. We hear all of these things about, oh, they sold out to Google and made 
you know, hundred million dollars, or they they were bought out by Drilling Info now in Veros, and they were in on and on. But what they don't see along the line is a very very challenging path. And one thing that I want to do is like help people survive that, but also avoid some of the pitfalls. Oh yeah, that's so important. I like I said, I worked many years in technology development research for the Department of Energy. Much of it was at the early stages of research, uh, uh, early TRL technology readiness level. There's a the Department of Energy uses a scale from one to nine. I guess NASA uses the same scale and the. The, the lowest scale, the lowest end of the scale, like a one, would be um, just above uh, an idea that's a little much more mature than a than a napkin, <laughs> a cartoon <laughs> on a napkin, right? Just I mean, it's just a real, just early stage concept. Um, and then, and then number nine is demonstrations for the purpose of commercialization, and that's a real launch. And all along this technology readiness level, there are kind of two valleys of death, you know, on around um, TRL two and three, you stop getting people interested in. in mm-hmm. it. And then maybe you get through, you know, four, five, six, and you start to get to those first pilot demonstrations, which take a lot of money because you really need to do like a scale, I mean, mm-hmm. a full scale uh, demonstration in order to continue to work out all those bugs and whatever. And then that's another valley of death because it takes a lot of money. And so um, finding sort of that sweet spot of, or I should say that uh, dream team of people who are, who have the money, have the interest, have the, the need, have the problem that needs to be solved and know that this is a solution for that. Having that all come together is just, just very, um, it's tricky. It's hard. And I've seen so many ideas never get past some of those valleys of death. And so it's, that's challenging. And so I'm happy to see that now with the energy transition, there's more and more funding available for different new ideas. Not that, um, I should say, uh, you know, not that the the funding is directed towards specific solutions. However, people can be creative about how they um, uh, put uh, technologies together or put their ideas together to maybe sort of fit into this because transition is exactly that. It's not, um, it's not flying over <laughs> a problem. It is actually dealing uh, step by step with each phase of the program. It'd be great if there was silver bullets, but. I, I love, I love what you're saying. And I, I'm, so here are two things that come to mind. First of all, I think throwing more money at it is good. I mean, um, the, and having more funding available. The challenge is, is that if it's not used correctly, it will just make it deeper and, and harder to crawl out of Valley of Death, at least, especially at stage two. People will do more and more of their, uh, have the, on the inventor side, but they don't have the team members to go out there and... Um, with the experience of operations and also uh, marketing. So then, and then the other element is that let, let's say that they do have a technology and then they do have people who, who are in it who have great ability to get the field trials people interested and get it out there and get proof of concept. When they get to the point of actually selling out to a, a company, they are often starved out. And the big companies know this. They know that, hmm, well, just... Um, and so it's very, very important to figure out how to have a solid revenue stream along that way so that you are not vulnerable in the same way as, as, as another company would be. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm, how, I'm hoping that there will be a lot more opportunities for new inventors and, and new ideas um, with respect to the, the fact that we have a little more um, money to play with with respect to the price of oil being so strong and so healthy and for natural gas. Now, it's unfortunate that there's so many reasons for um, the prices being uh, high, and they are fairly high for people. Um, but the idea of being able to use this opportunity um, to create um, new opportunities for others and and more solutions and really ultimately um, help people with their energy needs. I think I think this is a really a really special time. Um, also, I'm hoping that uh, young people will consider you know staying in the industry or going into the oil and gas sector. Um, what are your thoughts about um, you know how these new technologies can invent can um, uh, incentivize young people or, or uh, bring young people into the area. What are your thoughts about that? <laughs> well, one of my, the most exciting things that I've seen lately is the um, NUEM, the, the new uh, huge mega city that Saudi Arabia is developing. And it's not the city itself that I find to be so exciting. It's the way that they're investing their oil and gas revenues in new technologies that are all focused around sustainability and water. So, for example, one of the things that they've done is they've worked with a company in England to do prototypes and try out a new kind of evaporation water um, purification through desalination using ocean water. But it looks a little bit like, you know, the the buckyball (laughs) geodesic dome type of thing. It looks like a geodesic dome and it has mirrors and glass and the water is pumped in there, and it evaporates with the sun with sunlight. And then they have a bunch of, of solar panels, and those are usually used just to generate electricity for the pumps. But even without that, you can just have evaporation, and in any kind of of um, any kind of, of saline water, it will it will evaporate out and 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 recharge, and it goes into this like sil- uh, cylinder a sil- uh, a steel stainless steel cylinder, and they can produce out of each one of these sixty thousand gallons a day of fresh water. And I oh, think, oh my gosh, we really need to try these out. Out, and we could use it for produced water or brackish water. It might be a solution for the West or in the American West. Right, right. Yeah, one of the big projects I was involved in with the Department of Energy before I retired was with um, the New Mexico Produced Water Research Consortium. Um, the state is really the leader in bringing together new technologies to try to solve this situation with uh, with water. They're also an oil and gas producing state, and produced water is a challenge, as Oklahomans know, uh, with the early... Um, uh, in, in injection of deep water uh, of uh, produced water wastewater into deep injection wells and sort of learning and figuring out how that would all um, happen and, and keep it all safe and so um, with respect to the the New Mexico um, they're in a first hundred years of a 300 year you know, drought situation. So they're really looking at lots of different uh, ways. And so um, lots of people are getting into produced water and how to transform it from a waste to a resource. And that's a huge area of research um, that, as you say, the West, I mean, it's California is, you know, suffering from um, drought conditions. And and actually, they always have. I'm from California. 
um, I grew up along the coast and then I started my career in Bakersfield. So I definitely know about, um, you know, dry conditions and the like. Um, and living here in Washington, D.C. with all of the rainfall that we have, I mean, it's been raining like, you know, every week we get you know, get some pretty good rain. So, but not everybody is blessed with that. And I guess the reality is that produced water coming from oil and gas is an upstream challenge. And so there's a whole nother area of, uh, of work and research that, uh, that's needed to kind of address that. Does the, um, have, have you had some, uh, technologies developed, um, in that arena or does AAPG have, uh, or well, what do you know about, you know, produced water and how people can learn more about produced water? Well, that's, ex- we're really, really emphasizing and focusing on on that. And I think it's a chance for young geologists and young professionals to become heroes and to to really work on. And one of the one interesting exper- um, example is I just went through this um, last week, actually learned about what Merit Energy is doing in Wyoming. They have about oh, 540 wells. And they're right now in, in the middle of a water flood. One of their problems is, and I think probably it has to do with the early f- failure to use sufficient biocides, but they have a terrible H2S problem. Mm. So they have to remove the sulfur. Well, interestingly enough, there's a new technology that removes the sulfur, but it also creates a, a byproduct that is fresh water. And so this byproduct is this has been is tested rigorously tested and it, it meets FDA standards, and so it has been used to recharge surface impoundments, and the ranchers and the community members like it so much that they are actually partners and funding the the technology development and and in, and investing in this operation. Oh, that's so exciting. So exciting. Um, we talked earlier about, um, what did you say about El Paso? Oh, um, yes. Okay, so so the USGS has a brackish water resources publication. One came out in 2017 and another one, an update came out in 2021. These are not brackish waters that are co-produced with oil and gas, but they are actually shallow water that's not, um, it's, aquifer of potable water, but it's brackish. So it could have um, salt or it could have arsenic or it could have whatever in it. But what's interesting is that they are resources. And the city of El Paso has invested in a desalination plant that is the largest in the world in, in, in inland desalination. And they are producing brackish waters to the point that that, that is actually um, providing water for their entire city. So, so produced water could also be used, um, could also be treated. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that this desalinization is not very expensive. Um, I mean, it's more expensive than if you just sort of were able to drill a, a water well and, and, and get fresh well, water. But it is expensive. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, so there are two different things like desalination that's occurring in conjunction with removing sulfur, that's more of a, a, a chemical process that um, takes it out and, and kind of that's the byproduct. That's expensive, but the cost savings, et cetera, they pay for it, it pays for itself. Now, in the case of El Paso, desalination, there are two different ways 
right now, if you're not looking at the the buckyball evaporation method, which is very low cost, if you're looking at reverse osmosis, that's membrane ultrafiltration. So you have to use these like extremely, extremely fine uh, mesh um, membranes, and that's expensive. And because you have to force through the water, it takes a lot of energy. So that's why sometimes it's a good idea to co-produce use co-produced gas to at least do that. And then the most expensive is, is of course, thermal distillation because that takes a lot of energy. Oh, gosh. You know a lot about this. I, I think that's great. One of the issues is um, that produced water then should not be just considered as a waste, but yes. there is a place for it as a as a potential resource. And it doesn't just have to be used for agriculture, you know, food crops, but it could also be used for fire suppression, firefighting. Um, it could be used for um, go- watering golf courses, um, you know, places where people need water, would love to have water, but not necessarily water that um, would compete with um, water that they would drink or use in in the home. So, so we talked about water. <laughs> we talked yes. about the subsurface. Lots of pieces to the um, to the upstream. Um, we're we're getting close to time, but I did want to ask you about uh, carbon storage. What uh, with respect to a piece of upstream, you know, um, with respect to um, AAPG or your personal interests or whatever, what would you share about uh, carbon storage? I'm so glad you mentioned that too, because that's a, a, a big emphasis with AAPG and also a, an opportunity for um, geologists throughout the world. For example, just coincidentally, just, um, well, Saturday night, my time, Sunday morning, Indonesia time, a, I participated in an AAPG Young Professionals uh, conference on and competition for CCUS. And so the idea is to, to, there are different ways that carbon dioxide occurs or is produced in conjunction with oil and gas operations. And in many cases, carbon dioxide comes out from the processing of, of natural gas. It's a, a natural impurity, so it's taken out as well as the nitrogen, et cetera. Another way that carbon dioxide is produced is often in conjunction with coal plants or industrial um, uh, st- industrial applications. And so, but the most um, most appealing for for economic purposes is to be able to reinject the produced carbon dioxide into the reservoir and to either um, use it to enhance the production, um, basically through adjusting the miscibility of the reservoir fluids to push that out and produce it, or just simply to store it and then obtain carbon credits for uh, cap and trade that used to be called cap and trade. Now it's carbon credits. But that's um, uh, a wonderful way to eliminate carbon footprints. And then those can then be um, used to enhance the viability of an operation. 
Excellent. Excellent. Well, being able to use energy, any type of energy that you have that you can afford that is available to you, that's that's my my personal philosophy, all of the above. And so oil and gas is, uh, is the industry that I've been part of for 40 years now. Um, but I think we're going to be uh, using it for, for quite some time. Well, Dr. Susan Nash, we so much appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for being my first guest on our <laughs> new podcast, um, Oil and gas upstream and uh, we definitely will have to have you come back and tell us more you're just such a wealth of information and we didn't even get to the fact that you know so many languages and you have so many <laughs> other interests and we'll have to get uh, back on that too very good so Susan thank you so much oh thank you it's such an honor I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it and just um, wish you the best with this new podcast I think it's wonderful and thank you Great. Thank you. Okay. And look for us uh, next week from Oil and Gas Upstream, OGGN's new podcast. Thank you. Join us again next week on the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.